Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why? Has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? I tell you, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter told her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will now carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they buried her outside beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great title of a book that I'll never write, but I know the title already is the domestication of God or the domestication of Jesus, his son. I think about that a lot. We, we say it like this. You know what I really like about God? And then I, I give you some kind of a story um, of an attribute of God that I really, really like. And I, I would just ask, as, as you think about that, I don't know if that's necessarily it's like a human way to respond. My question is this. Is that what you like about God or is that what you like about you? And when you see what you like about you in God, you like that too. And those areas about God, about who he is, about what he does that you don't like, you just kind of want to either not pay attention to them or distort them. I just don't, I don't like that part. I would ask this question, who, who is God then? Who, who, who is it that you really like? And if we're brutally honest, uh, many of us, all of us, I think probably all of us to some degree, wrestle with this because we really do have some deep convictions about what is right and what is good. And instead of them coming from the scriptures, they're just usually occasionally supported by the scriptures. But we've already made our mind up about what is right and good and true. And when we see it in God, we just love that about him. 
And then when we see other attributes of God that we begin to question or wonder, we spend most of our time trying to put him back in the box that we had, which is really most likely a reflection of us. Be careful with verse and chapter divisions, my professors would tell me. Be careful when you read and then all of a sudden you stop at a particular point because, well, that's the end of chapter four. I'll pick up chapter five tomorrow. When Luke was writing Acts, he he didn't put 4, 37, turn the page, 5, 1, new thought. He's telling, in some sense, a story. Not just a bunch of stories, but a story. And I think there has been a small injustice done with the division between 437, Acts chapter 4, verse 37, and Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It's almost like you see two um, diametrically opposed pictures of the church. A church that is trying to do its best to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus to the community around them. And we look at picture one, Acts chapter four, verses 32 through 37, and we go, I like that picture. Like there's something moving about that picture. There's something like convicting about that picture. Like I begin to wonder like how much of my own possessions should I keep and how much should I have a heart like that where I see the needs of those around me. Man, I don't know if that's me, but I am genuinely inspired. How many of you are genuinely inspired by people who give generously to people in need? I am. Genuinely inspired. And I love that picture. I love when the church is the church, you know? Like when the church really is Jesus and they're really like Jesus when they look at the needs in the community around them and they respond lovingly and graciously. That's when the church is really the church. I've, I've, I've preached that. I've owned that in my own heart. Like somehow in those moments, you know, those Acts chapter four verses 32 through 37 moments, that's when the church is really the church. But chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, eh, not so much. Like, that's actually a difficult text. It's one of the reasons why when we were looking at it as a staff, we decided to hold the two of them together because I think they should be understood together. Two times in which the church was the church because there is a connecting idea through both of these is that when the church recognizes the needs around them and they respond, there is great witness and great testimony and everybody goes, wow, that's the church. That's, that is so different than the way the rest of us live. And in Acts chapter five, verses one through 11, when God, Peter, Peter is God's instrument in this moment, when sin is confronted and judged and buried, People go, wow, that's the church? I would say both. I don't know how to do equal. It's God's thing. Both are clear pictures of Jesus. And I need to learn to really appreciate not versions of him, but him. Um, That's why we use words like wrestle with the text, struggle with the text, because it can be a struggle sometimes. That's why when there are baptisms, we had one first service. 
We had one second service. We've got a few more going on, right? That's why, think about how we describe it. (laughs) We describe it like, are you ready to die to yourself? Swallow hard. What's happening? Oh, you're about to die. Like, you know, death. Small thing. And then raised to walk a new life. That's why none of us, I don't think any of us, can ever remember our birth. Because if it was hard on mom, imagine what those babies are going through. Right? Like just the shock and the change and the cold and the, all of it. But that's life. The way God intended it to be. That's our text for this morning. Where we don't get to see two diametrically opposed pictures of the church. Church A, loving and caring and nurturing and sweet. Isn't it cute? Picture B, death, destruction, lying, deceit. Isn't that terrible? The Bible doesn't operate like that. Go back and read in Genesis. I'm not saying everything is the same. I am saying, though, that we, we approach one God. We, we have one Savior, not a schizophrenic Jesus or a schizophrenic God, and I have no idea what he's going to do when I meet him, because you know how he is. Sometimes he's like sending floods, and the other times he's sending rainbows. Actually, same story. Like sometimes he's judging a nation with ten plagues, and another time he's actually walking the people through the Red Sea. Same story. One God. We don't get to pick and choose the stories that we like. So we have to deal with both of them. And so I want you to hear one picture that I'm going to describe in two frames. Frame number one, as the church is responding to who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done, the church as a generous community. They look at who Jesus is. They look at who, what Jesus has done. They look at their lives. They look at God, the creator, the one who gave them life and then gave them everything else, who then gave them a context in which to live. And he said, be like me. And the church, by remembering who God is and remembering who Jesus is and by remembering their own brokenness and then remembering what God did to heal their brokenness, the church seemed to, in the book of Acts and in Stillwater, Oklahoma, when it's the church, kind of just knew what to do. So the church is just being the church and people are coming to church and people are giving their faith and life to Jesus Christ and those people are really, really needy and the church just knew what to do. I don't even know if somebody had to preach a sermon. Okay, today's sermon is entitled Selling Your Rental Properties for Others in Need. I don't even, I don't, I don't know if that was like a special sermon. I'm sure they talked about it, but I bet you a lot of them were like, well, I, I was kind of looking at what I had, then I looked at those people that were literally, by the way, in this context, in Jerusalem, where there is a famine, starving. So the need is not, really can't pay my cell phone bill. Like not, let's not like small at all of our struggles, but particularly of theirs. How do you, how do you share the Lord's Supper with someone Especially when New Testament, it's like a meal. (laughs) Knowing that this will be the only meal this family has this week. And then you go home and the choices you have are are just like through the roof. How, how How do you live with yourself? 
Well, the truth is, is that you look at, and, and this is what's interesting. I'm not asking you to stare. This is, what, this is where the church gets it wrong. They stare at the needs of the community. And we should do something. Don't know what we should do, but we should do something. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, look at God. Look at who he is and look at what he's done. Stare at him. Think about his generosity and his kindness. Think about the overflow into your life. Think about he gives and gives and gives. Like he gave, he gave his son and then he gave you, he gave you everything. He gave you the ability to provide for your family. Like he just gives and gives and gives. Like you just live in the wake of the goodness that he has given to you. Like just sit there and like bask in like a thousand Christmas trees with a million presents. <laughs> wow, isn't God good? Okay, now let's look at the needs. Because I promise you, when you stare at God and you look at what he has done for you, particularly in Christ Jesus, and then you turn to the world in its brokenness and its darkness and its sin and its poverty, you'll know what to do. I promise you, you'll know what to do. People that don't know what to do usually are people that have never looked to God. They get mad. Why do these people not have anything? You evil rich people, we should figure out a way to take it from you and give it to them. The whole tone is wrong. It's not Jesus' tone. That's a worldly system. We're going to take from you and give it to them. That's a worldly system. To be Christian is to be generous. Actually, you don't have to take it. I've already, I've already got the check ready for you. You don't, have to, you don't have to tax me on this. I'm already willing to give it. Yeah, we don't need a government agency. We at the church, we make sure that no one has a need. Is that who we are? Acts chapter four, verses 33 through 35. This is how it's described. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. That's their witness. Which, by the way, is verbal in this. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. There's a couple of ways we can do that. Number one, we can just say, hey, by the way, if you're needy, you're not welcome. That's how we could make sure that there's no needy people in this entire fellowship. We just have requirements. That's what we'll do. Paul will have requirements. So at our one-on-one class, just we want you to kind of, if you don't mind, just put down your net worth and then we can assess whether or not you should be a member here. Anybody want to be a part of that church? I'd leave. I'd write a really crazy blog post about you and then I would leave. Couple of tweets, boom, right? That's one way that we could do it. Another way that we could do it, I actually met a, a gathering, I call it a synagogue of people when I was in Toronto one time and I asked the, the gentleman, the one who was leading this gathering and I asked him, how do you guys handle giving? Because where I go, come from, we just pass the gold plate. And he said, oh, it's actually different in our community in our culture we have everyone it's Canadian okay so um, let me translate for you we ask people for their t4 w2 we ask people for their t4 and then we just let them know how much they owe and we send them a bill I guess that's one way to handle it and then you take from those who have and you give to those who do not have hmm, interesting that doesn't really seem, I mean, so wait, two ways that we can do it. Number one, you're not allowed. Number two, we will manage your life for you. By the way, both 
worldly responses. Neither of them are Jesus. This is what Jesus' people do. See, there's not a needy person among them, but they didn't do it like the world. For as many as were owners of lands and of houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and then they laid it at the apostles' feet. Hey, this really wasn't mine, so now I'm just gonna kind of keep handing it along. It wasn't mine to begin with. My wife and I never ever thought it was ours. So we looked at, we literally, we stared at, at, at God and his goodness and then Jesus and his greatness. And we just thought, yeah, we gotta do something about this because I just, I know what's gonna happen next Sunday and I'm gonna sit beside him and I'm gonna just feel like something is wrong. And I, I, my wife and I, we went home after church and we thought we need to do something for that family. And we thought, well, what do we do? And so we just, we decided to sell some land because we just couldn't, we couldn't take communion again knowing that there was a need that wasn't being met. You don't need to tax me. I already have it for you. For as many were owners of land or houses, they sold them, brought them to the apostles' feet, and then it was distributed to each as they had need. Love that picture of the church. Now that's when the church is the church. It's different in our day in some ways, and in other ways not. I love the fact that we belong. Can I tell you the kind of church that you either belong to or that you're visiting today? Our budget, we do this every October, November. We decide how much are we gonna give to benevolence, meaning how much are we going to make available, particularly to our church family and and to anyone, literally anyone who comes and says we need help. I've been around long enough, now 15 years. And every year, usually around this time, Paul, right, around this time, we actually have an opportunity to go, wow, okay, here's how much we've spent in benevolence. And we have a budget. You know what I mean? Like we want to be responsible with the financial resources that God has given to us. Sometimes we have given a lot. And we have a budget. And I walk into elders meetings and usually in October and November and December and I, I have one of the elders who say, yeah, listen, I, I know that we have a number that we kind of use, but let's remember that there is no like limit on the needs that our people have that we need to address. I know we're a little over this year, I get it. But you do know like there's not a limit to that. There's not a limit to that budget. By the way, there's a limit to our youth budget, which by the way is managed great. There's a limit to our adult ministries budget. There's a limit to Jim Johnson's lead minister's budget. I think, I think, I don't know if we've said this. I see a bunch of elders kind of sitting in this area. I think, I don't know if we've actually said this out loud, but I think the two that really don't have like a limit limit, right, Mark, is this not true? Would be like missions and benevolence. Like that one, we just, what's the need? How did you know to do that? Well, we were thinking about God and Jesus and it just seemed like the appropriate response. And, and by the way, can I just say on behalf of the elders, on behalf of the staff, we're not doing that for you. We're doing it with you. We look at the needs and we respond. I love different pictures of what this actually looks like, and so I'm going to ask a friend of mine, Randy, to come up. She is a young lady who is a part of our fellowship who years ago saw a need in our community and in the extended communities or even all the way to the end of the world and said, we need to do, in light of who God is, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what they've done for us, and then in light of this need, we need to do something. 
And I really want her to share what that actually looks like so you can see Acts 4, verses 32 through 37 in action here. Randy. Thank you, Jim. Um, It is a joy to be here with you and talking about this with Jim um, and reflecting on it this week and even thinking back to even where we began at 146. So 146 actually stands for the 146 million orphans in the world, which is what the number was when we began this years ago. Ashley Smith and I, um, it has since grown then, which makes me a little bit sad just to say out loud, but um, it began with two mamas that really desired to pursue the Lord and give him everything we had. And he called us on a crazy journey called adoption. And we didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And we came back and we knew that there was more than just our adoption. Like there was more that we felt the church here at Sunnybrook. Like there was a need beyond what Ashley and I could meet. And we felt like this church body could be a part of that. And so we came back and started praying, what does this look like, Lord, for us to do ministry here and care for the widows and the orphans and the vulnerable and the broken? What does that look like? And it began kind of simple. It was supporting adoptions. It was finding families that felt called to do that and coming alongside them and giving them resources, not just money, but the prayers and the sitting when it's crying when it's hard and it's complicated and the process is much longer and harder than you ever thought it was going to be possible. And then we added in some sponsorship. And we added in sponsorship to Mexico, to a sweet children's home down there that needed support. They needed us to come, and they needed us to do some work, but they also needed us to send some financial resources so that those families could be cared for, that the church family there just couldn't quite cover it. And so we got to be a part of that. And then we extended that to the DR recently, and we extended that to Ethiopia, and then Rwanda, and it just, it kept going because the needs just kept showing up, and the Lord kept being faithful and kept bringing people. And then, of course, there's the need here locally, the foster care system, right next door to us, because we can adopt internationally, we can adopt domestically, but there are also those that are in this temporary world that don't have a home of any kind. And you see, what we are doing here flows in and through and for the glory of Jesus Christ. See, we're not the world that just offers these children just temporary help of food and clothing, the basic necessities, although those are helpful and they are good. What we offer them is eternal. We offer them the hope that is to know Jesus Christ whether that is with them for a day, with them for a week, with them for a year, we get to show them and tell them about Jesus and let that transform them, let that change who they are from the inside out. So we have adoption and we have foster care, we have sponsorship, but you know what else there's a need for? A support system for those that are fostering and those that are adopting, because I don't know if you know this, but it's really challenging to do that. It's really hard. And there's a lot of tears, and there's a lot of frustration, and there's some really good things, too, that happen. And we need people to come alongside them to bring meals, to take care of laundry, to mow lawns, to sit with them, to cry with them, to sit at doctor's appointments, to watch kids. I mean, the the needs are almost endless in that sense of what the church can do, even just to support foster families within our own congregation, let alone outside of here into Stillwater and into the ends of the world. 
And so if any of that is ringing true for you, what I want to do, I want to highlight, we have a insert in your bulletin, but also come talk with us afterwards. We're gonna be up front, we're out in the lobby. We would love to get you connected with what we are doing and answer any questions. So thanks, Jim. Thank you. It's just good to realize that it's not just a long time ago in a land far, far, it seems, away, but there is still the work of the Holy Spirit that is moving inside of us that's saying, I found a need. What are we going to do about it? So grateful to see that ministry continue to grow. So there is a picture, right, of the church being the church, recognizing a need and responding to it. And I, I really want to be careful. I don't want to just go, okay, turn the page. It's like, no, turn the coin. It's, it's the same church. It's not a different church. It's not the church on a bad day. It's not a different God. It's not God on a bad day. It literally is as simple as this. The church, looking at individuals, and and the collective as well, but looking at individuals and how they all come together, and then knowing at that moment what to do. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now there was a man named Ananias. You remember the song? Can you believe? I don't know if we do it anymore, but when I grew up, we had a children's song about this story. It went like this. Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power but did not fear it. Tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied it. And they both dropped dead. Ugh! There's nothing like taking a story about God's judgment killing a most likely a mother and a father, (laughs) for their sinful deception and lying and cheating their wicked hearts and killing them in front of the rest of the church. We should teach that one to our children. Maybe we should. Maybe we should teach that to the kids. Because kids, um, it can be confusing to be a kid. And then their friends start making some choices that they, they don't agree with. Mom and dad said, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but my friends are doing this, and I'm supposed to like my friends and be with my friends and hang out with my friends. And So maybe I should, you know what, I probably shouldn't say anything, and then we kind of have standing over us, do not judge. Little kids. In your high, high school kids. I don't know what to do. I got these friends, and they're kind of doing this. I just, I'm not going to say anything. I won't be involved, but I won't say anything. Fast forward. Well, I, you know, I don't, I think, I think maybe this sounds like fun, and I think I might need to be, the Bible actually teaches that bad company corrupts good morals. Maybe we should teach our kids. Like, sin is dangerous. And not just particular kinds of sins. Like, sins. And so be very careful like I would, I would recommend be very, very careful just treating things like sin in a human way or even in a childish way or in a friendly way when, when God doesn't look at it that way. Most people know what to do when they see a starving person. It gets really, really complicated when we meet a sinful one. What do we do? Anybody know what to do? I don't know what to do. It's even harder when you're dealing with like a sinful friend. 
or a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad. And I, I just, I don't want to burn any bridges. I don't want to make, I don't want them to think I'm holier than thou. I just, I don't know. I'll just say nothing. After all, I promised my kids I'd love them no matter what. Dumbest thing you could do. See, it's not dumb. It's sinful. To promise people support. Where God isn't supportive. I love this reminder. It was mentioned in a staff meeting the other day. It really, really hit me. To call something okay or to be permissible in an area that God has deemed wrong. That is by definition immorality. To say it's okay when it's not okay is in fact to be sinful. To support, to, by the way, probably lovingly, support wrong behavior puts you on the wrong side of a very holy and righteous and dangerous God. It's the same story. The church dealing with life (laughs) the way God would. So when God sees those who are starving, he sends us to feed them. And when God sees those of us who are lost in sin, God sends us to speak the truth in love. By by the way, the, the text, like Peter doesn't like take out a knife and stab them. He doesn't even stone them. That would be a biblical way, right? No, God does it. So be very careful. I think one of the lessons I could learn from this text is be very careful giving final judgment. That's God's. It's not me. Our elders don't offer final judgment. No, we don't. No, we're more like Peter. No, I'm I'm going to draw attention to the sin. Are you sinning? Are you willfully sinning? Are you rejecting Jesus? Are you rejecting God? Yes. And then God acts. Now, I'm kind of grateful he doesn't seem to do this every time, at least not to me. <laughs> and in all of my years of ministry, I've, I've, I've had to confront a sin number of times. I've never had a funeral immediately following. But that sometimes makes it confusing. I mean, that's, that's kind of what actually makes like sin so dangerous is because there isn't always a funeral immediately following and so you and I begin to believe, like, I don't know if it's that bad. Like, it doesn't seem like anything happened. You know that, I can't believe you just said that. I better stand back before lightning strikes. You know that joke? Well, when lightning doesn't strike, we just go, hey, then why don't we just hang out? <laughs> nothing happened. Like, you, you decided to completely rebel against God, do nothing that he wanted to do, and your life seems to be going great. I'm with you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God is going to bring his judgment whenever he chooses. I don't know when that is. That's not my concern. It really isn't. But as a follower of Jesus, it is my responsibility to look into God. We've stared at his generosity and his kindness. It's the same God. I want you to see his holiness. I want you to see his righteousness. I want you to see like just from the overflow of his purity, like a way to live and to respond. The Bible teaches that we should be holy because he is in fact holy. And therefore, 
How many of you would be deeply offended if you knew that we as a church refused to feed? There was a couple that came here the other day. I'm making this up. There was a couple that came here the other day and they said, we're starving. And we went, well, good for you. We hope you starve all the way to death. Get out of our church. How many of you would just be livid? You'd post things about it. Can you believe our church did that? We're not going back there. By the way, I'd be with you. Imagine now that our church decided to embrace some kind of sin. I know you've got the ones that you definitely would leave over. And then you got a bunch that you don't really care that much about. I do. There are some that are deal breakers and some that are not. And I need to repent of that. If I knew this church was racist, I'm out of here. Sexist, no way. Classist, not a chance. Sexually immoral, well, that's a little more complicated. You know, because we all have sins. How do we... Really? Like, that one's not a big deal? Can we just speak honestly... It's really not a big deal to most of us. Not being faithful to our covenant in marriage, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, seriously, it's not, you know, like the big ones. Like, how can we pick and choose? I, I guarantee you, I, don't, I look at this, all they did was lie about how much they gave. Like, I'm not, I'm not recommending it to anybody, but give me a break. It's not like they were terrible people. That creeps into every single one of us. Peter makes it very clear. Here's the problem, Acts 5.4. You've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. That's the problem. David put it this way when he realized what he had done and God had judged him. For I know my transgression, Psalm 51, in his act, his confession, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then listen to this line. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Like I'm not here to make excuses about what I did. I followed that really biblical pattern. This is a bad biblical pattern of seeing something that I wanted, desiring it deeper in my heart, and then taking it, knowing that it was not God's plan or purpose for me. Whether it's a fruit on a tree, whether it is a, um, a slave girl named Hagar, and Abraham and Sarah saw that she could provide for them a child, not, not wait upon God's plan. They saw her, they desired, and they took her, decided to do it another way. Aaron built a calf. Just seemed like the smart thing to do at the time. Achan, in Israel's history, when he went into Jericho, saw the gold, saw the plunder, and thought, man, why are we wrecking this stuff? I could use it. God judged him and his family. His family were those that knew about this and supported it. So can I just say very clearly, if you are trying to support those around you because they're family, or because they're friends. God doesn't look at that as noble. I would even say like those who love Jesus don't look at that as a noble endeavor. Honor among thieves. We're thieves. We're thieves. There really is no honor 
Well, you know, but among us there is. And so the church seems to, at some level, like get it. Here's a person in need, we should take care of them. Here's a person sinning. Let's go back and talk about this some more. I've heard way more sermons about how the church needs to be more compassionate to the needy among us. I don't think we say this out loud. Some actually do. And more permissible to those who are sinful among us. No, not permissible. Like truth tellers, who by the way, speak with grace and truth. Speak with kindness and gentleness, Paul says. Someone sinning among you, be gentle. That's what he says. See, this is the same Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. I know this might surprise you, but he doesn't always just go, hey, let's be cute and cuddly. He says this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. That's what the angel said. That's where I got it from. By the way, these aren't contradictory ideas, but Jesus is showing the depth of who he is. He is decide. By the way, Jesus has come. I'm not arguing with Jesus. He would agree with me, I think. Actually, I would agree with him. Did I just say that? I would agree with him, I hope. Jesus did come to bring peace to those who repent and like, accept him. But to those who don't, to those who are arrogant and proud, and that in their sin and after a warning, because that's our responsibility as a church, they decide to be continually arrogant and proud. You know, like Pharaoh, like Achan, like Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What? How is that the same Jesus? What happened? Who woke up on the wrong side of the bed today? And the answer is, no, that's not the wrong side of anything. It's those people who decided to be on the wrong side of Jesus. He offered peace, and they threw it back at him. I got a better way. I'm going to eat the fruit. I got a better way. I'm going to steal the gold. I got a better way. I'm going to take my slave girl. I got a better way. And then they meet the same Jesus who offered them peace. They said, no, I'll take the sword. Notice the response of this, Acts chapter five, verse 11. What is the response when Ananias and Sapphira die? It's it's like similar, but different, but similar response. The church, or the community was absolutely amazed at how the church was caring for the needs of those people around them. And then they were absolutely amazed. Look at what it says in Acts 5.11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. They thought, wow, I'll tell you one thing about that church over there. They take the needs of the poor and sin seriously. Which could be said of us? I sure hope it's both. I sure hope it's always both. And I sure hope that we realize like it's the same God. Because he calls you to holiness. He calls you to repentance. He calls us together to be this holy church because he loves us. And he knows the pain that sin and embraced sin and supported sin and encouraged sin creates. And therefore, may we be a church 
that is a consistent reflection of who Jesus Christ is. Here's a bold one. I'm going to actually use Acts, or sorry, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, properly. Do you know it? This one we butcher most of the time. This is one of those verses that Christians misuse consistently. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. That really gives a reason for you to be excited about the fact that no one showed up to your Bible study. No. It begins this, verse 15. And when a brother sins against you, go to him and warn him. And if he doesn't repent, take it to the church. And then if they they continue to not repent, treat him as you would, like a pagan or a tax collector, like exclude them. Paul says to the Corinthian church, purge the evil that is from among you. That just sounds so not us. But it is Jesus. Because he said, for where two or three are gathered, meaning from the Deuteronomy, where two or three gather, speaking judgment against those who choose to embrace sin, whatever it is. There I am. There I am. Why is it so easy to see Jesus when I look at somebody who has, like, got this tremendous need? They're thirsty. And Jesus says, what? If you see somebody who is really, really thirsty, what are we supposed to do? Give them a cup of cold water. If we see somebody that is, like, cold and naked, what do we do? We give them something to wear. And Jesus says, and when you do this, you do it for me. Jesus says, Um, Just so you're aware, like so all of us are aware, like this text, I wrestle with this because I have people in my life that choose sin. Like a brother chose sin and it changed our relationship for nine years. I remember, this is where it gets really hard, it gets close to home. I remember finding out that, um, uh, that my sons were involved in some inappropriate foolishness. No, sin. And I won't say who it was that I really went after, because it's my oldest one, and that's always awkward. So it's just one of them who happened to be the oldest. And I, I, I said to him, he was about to be in a preaching contest at Ozark Christian College. And he, he really kind of, this is kind of how he's wired up. I want to preach from Acts 17 about Paul preaching and the philosophy and how Christianity is just like this better way of thinking. And around that same time, I discovered this sin. We began to like share it with our friends and those that are close and say, hey, here's what's going on inside the Johnson household. Like we can't hide this. This is a, it's really a part of who we are. I'm not necessarily proud of it, like even my own sin, but I am actually am really kind of proud that, boy, oh boy, I know what it's like to see sin, to confront sin, and to feel the joy of forgiveness. And I'm so grateful that my boys at that moment understood what to do. They understood how to repent and experience God's goodness. The same God, his goodness. So I told them, I want you to call the college. I want you to say, hey, here's kind of some behavior that I've been involved in, and I need to know if you're still okay with me preaching, because preaching the gospel your character matters, and whatever they decide, I'm, I'm on board with that son, and so my son called them and kind of explained what was going on, and they said, man, thank you for sharing that. Man, I mean, and they had a long conversation, then they said, okay, are we, I think we're okay with this, and so yes, you can preach. 
So he came back, said, Dad, I did it, and I'm still allowed to preach. I said, well, that's great. I said, hey, by the way, just one thing. You're no longer preaching Acts 17. You're preaching Acts 5. God kills sinners. (laughs) And he did. It was a pretty good sermon. But what I mean by good is that he closed his sermon by being very honest and open and transparent about sin. And not just generic sin, but his sin. That's what I mean by good. You know what to do when you see people in need? You know what to do when you see people who are wayward and wrong, broken? I think we do. And the same God that judges sin says, and I best judged it there. And if we are faithful, and if we confess our sins, he will be faithful, and he will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Same God. So it's good to remember that. It's good to remember that that is essentially what God is about and who God is like, because there are moments when we gather around the table and we have this powerful picture of God, and in a moment we're going to hold in our hands two symbols that represent the holiness, the dangerousness, and the generosity of God. The Bible actually says that if you are going to eat the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself. I don't think it's just meaning examine to see if you've got any sins this week. I think it's more about examining yourself in collection with the rest of the body. But what I absolutely love about the Lord's Supper is it just reminds me of the depths of God's generosity and the amazing expense that he was willing to go to to take care of my need. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to take a piece of bread and to take a cup and to hold it. And here in a moment, we will share together, remembering what God has done for us in Jesus.